Hello, this is Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Today we are speaking with Charles M. Stang, professor of early Christian thought at Harvard and director of the Center for the Study of World Religions over there in Massachusetts. Dr. Stang, pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Earl. Thank you so much. Now, the reason I've uh, hunted you up to do this interview is because I came across a book of yours, which kind of blew my mind. It's a really interesting book called Our Divine Double. And maybe the, the best way to get the ball rolling is if you just kind of lay out the thesis of this book and what the, the main kind of topics are. Sure. So the, maybe the I'll come to the thesis by way of speaking about what I tried to make sense of in the book, which is that you see in the second and third century a kind of explosion of interest in this figure that I call the divine double. I see it in religious and philosophical literature, the ancient Mediterranean. And this figure is imagined to be a kind of divine counterpart, alter ego, companion spirit. We each have one of these, or alternately, there's one kind of figure that's serving as this sort of counterpart for all of us. So I started seeing this appear in pretty disparate literature, Christian literature, Manichaean literature, philosophical literature uh, in the kind of platonic tradition. And the book was an attempt to make sense of this. And insofar as there's a thesis, the thesis is that there's actually a pretty coherent picture of the self that cuts across these religious and philosophical traditions. Uh, An idea that the self, the self we think we are, we're accustomed to thinking of ourselves as one self, that that's a form of false consciousness and that in fact, our proper selfhood is constituted as sometimes called a bi-unity or one and two. And so you have to kind of be initiated into this reality, often through an encounter or a visit by this divine double. And then you embark on essentially an adventure of uh, conforming ever more to that divine double. And so I suppose a corollary to the thesis is that this is a lost or forgotten chapter in the history of mysticism, more specifically the history of deification, the idea that the human is on some itinerary of becoming ever more divine. Right on. Now, you say on on page 12 of your book, the task of this book is to retrieve the tradition of the divine double from the obscurity into which it has fallen, partly owing to the heterodoxy that hovers around most of its central texts. Now, the, all the texts you talk about, well, you start out with Plato, which, you know, is always a good place to start. And you talk about, you know, Socrates' Daimonion and other kind of doubling or, you know, higher divine self uh, discourses from Plato. And then you talk about the Gospel of Thomas, Plotinus, and Mani and Manichaeism in, you know, in great detail. These are like the three big mm-hmm. chunks. Now, these are heterodox, but they're heterodox in retrospect from a normative Christianity. It seems yes. to me. No, I mean heterodox only to explain why this tradition fell into obscurity in the intervening centuries where Christian orthodoxy were the gatekeepers of what was preserved and what wasn't preserved. I'm not uh, endorsing mm. Christian orthodoxy as the gatekeeper in any way. 
But the fact is that at least with the Christian texts that uh, that constitute the the center of the inquiry, these are texts that weren't heterodox in their day, as you said, although there was some suspicion surrounding them, like the Gospel of Thomas, Mm. uh, but that they fell out of circulation and favor because they were they were essentially deemed to be heretical or at the very least false starts. And Manichaeism, of course, was vilified and scorned by Christianity. Uh, Platonism isn't really heterodox, as you well know, uh, so that doesn't account for its obscurity uh, in Platonism. I think what accounts for its obscurity in the Platonic tradition has probably more to do with the history of scholarship on Plato and Platonism, which has been, again, as you well know, perhaps better than I, struggling to get out from under a kind of rationalist interpretation of Platonism or a sidelining of any of the Platonists that are, well, frankly, weird or um, mystical, the theurgists, of course. Yeah. So. Indeed, I, I will I will definitely buy that. And um, and just so I do- should say, let me just say, I am not a biblical scholar and and approaching some of these early Christian texts that typically fall under the purview of biblical scholarship was was actually a little bit intimidating because there's just so much damn scholarship on anything having to do with biblical or parabiblical texts and it's always and it's not fun scholarship to read a lot of it's really dry a lot of it isn't you get occasional gems but a lot of it is very exactly Um, exactly the reason i ask that that question about kind of where's the angle coming from is because i think you anatomize a few strands in the sort of third and fourth centuries, second, start second, third to fourth centuries of religious and philosophic thought that there is this, this very strong kind of discourse of, of a higher self. And I just think, expand that out. Like if you look at Islam, the Islamicate world, you see this in a big way going forward with mm-hmm. the doctrine of the Tiba'atam. And this is something maybe we can talk about a bit later. And then we get into the um, thorny uh, interpretational problems to do with Henri Corbin, potentially, but that's also something we can talk about. So I feel like this doesn't die out. Maybe it just, it gets squinched in the Christian tradition, but it kind of flowers out in other traditions. And I think also in rabbinic Judaism as well, where you have this strong angelification discourse that goes all the way back to the Merkava texts whenever they were composed. I'm not even going to try to date them, but Gershom Sholem, who, who's, you know, had forgotten more about the Kabbalah than I will ever know in a thousand lifetimes before he died, he dates them very early. He says these are from antiquity, from late antiquity. Um, others want to say, no, 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 they're medieval. But either way, it's rabbinic mm-hmm. Judaism, and it, you have angels... And you basically need to get in touch with them and become them in some way. And that's going to be how you ascend toward God. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, Can you just tell us a little bit about uh, the Gospel of Thomas? What's interesting about the Gospel of Thomas from the perspective of the twin? Well, two things. First of all, that it is attributed to the Apostle Thomas, who is called the twin, Didymus in Greek. And that there are, I believe, seven really, uh, seven explicitly opaque gnomic sayings about the quote unquote one and the two and how they interrelate. And and that these are, you know, among the sayings that are in the Gospel of Thomas, 
some some are familiar from the canonical New Testament and others are not. These, of course, are not in the canonical New Testament. Uh, so let, let, maybe I should back up and say something just a little bit for, the, for everyone who's listening about the Gospel of Thomas. This Please. is a text that we've known existed because certain Christian authors mentioned it, uh, 3rd century, 3rd and 4th century, if I'm not mistaken, largely to disparage it. It was you know, one of these Gospels in circulation that was deemed heterodox by the, emerging, the standards of the emerging orthodoxy. Okay. We knew it existed late 19th century. We discovered some fragments of it from Egypt uh, in Greek, papyrus fragments. And then with the Nag Hammadi codices, uh, we have a complete copy of the Gospel of Thomas, but in Coptic. It's, it's a, a gospel that's unlike any other gospel because there's no narrative about Jesus' ministry. It's just a collection of his sayings. And there's sayings that it is said that he uttered these sayings and that the apostle Judas Thomas, the twin, wrote them down. So what you've got in the Gospel of Thomas is both this figure, Thomas, the twin, which is a figure we are I'm already familiar with from the Gospel of John, canonical gospel, where it's never explained why this apostle is called the twin. Yeah. And then we have a whole, we have a number of these early Christian texts associated with or attributed to this figure, but in this one in particular, there are these sort of esoteric sayings about the one and the two. I went into that to try and figure out what are these sayings about? And my thesis is essentially that the sayings on the one and the two are very much a kind of esoteric commentary on what it means that Thomas is Jesus's twin. I can go into more detail if you'd like, but let me just pause and see if that makes sense so far. It makes sense. Um, the only thing I would add is that Thomas means twin in Aramaic, doesn't it? So that's right. So he's twin twin, which he's is twin twin appropriate. Um, <laughs> and in fact, maybe I'll just jump in and say that some of the early Christian interpreters uh, of the Gospel of John were perplexed as to why uh, this this uh, apostle didn't seem to have a first name. Who is he? He's Thomas, which, as you said in Aramaic, means twin, and then he's given the Greek title twin Didymus, so he's called twin twin. And they think, they, I won't go into the details, but they, they, they land on the interpretation that this is one of Jesus's brothers, one of his several brothers, and, uh, and his name is Judas, not Judas the Iscariot, but another Judas. So in these later texts from the second, third century, this apostle is called Judas Thomas the twin, or Judas twin twin. Right. And what did you come up with trying to interpret this this gnomic, very mysterious, uh, wow, the the Christian Hadith literature that is um, the Gospel of Thomas? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, well, what I came up with is that I, it's pretty obvious that the Gospel of Tom in the Gospel of Thomas that Jesus is preaching a theology whereby he, the living Jesus, is this sort of principle. That it, or, or person or principle that exists in each one of us, this pre-existent, primordial, luminous Jesus. And if you can awaken to that person principle, you suddenly become two. There's, the, there's you, 
and there's this Jesus that's living in you. I think that's what the seven or so sayings about the one and the two are trying to explore. And then the gospel also uh, experiments with terminology to describe the state of one who has been initiated into this duality, but now contains that duality in a new unity. And in Coptic, the term is wawot, a single one. Um, and there's debates as to what this, what the, the Greek behind this Coptic is. Uh, the Coptic also uses the Greek word monachos, or solitary, or single one, to describe that. Ironically, the single one is the one in whom both Jesus and the, the your, uh, your, your, your quotidian self exists. That word, of course, will come to mean something very different. In the fourth century, it will come to name particular kind of Christian solitaries that we know as monks. But early, it has a very, this in this text, I, I argue, and I'm not alone, it has a really specific meaning. I also think the text is interesting, Earl, because it's not just exploring and describing this reality. I'm pretty certain that the Gospel of Thomas understands itself as a text that is supposed to enable the awakening of this Jesus principle in you. It's a text that is meant to be interpreted and the interpretation of it is supposed to do something to the reader. Uh, so it's it's an initiatory text. Mm, laser mysterium. Um, exactly. Mm -hmm. That is very interesting. Now, if I'm the Apostle Paul, and you came up to me and said, hey, Jesus is, is alive in everyone, I'd say, yeah, 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 of course. Right? Mm -hmm. But clearly a line here is being crossed that the Apostle Paul would not go anywhere near. And so it's it's the the way in which this sort of inner Christ being in all of us is being expressed or being being thought about or maybe even being realized in day-to-day -day life that is takes it beyond the pale of what eventually becomes mainstream Christianity. Well, if we, if we can hold off what becomes mainstream Christianity for a minute and just linger with the Apostle Paul, as you suggest, I think it's very interesting because you're quite right Paul has a version of this idea himself. Galatians 2.20 is the centerpiece. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So there you have that duality. Christ doesn't annihilate the self. Christ lives in me. There's a, there's a, Christ inhabits. But where, so where does this sort of Paul, the Pauline Christianity and, and Thomas Christianity, or where does the Apostle Paul and the Gospel of Thomas depart? I think it, the, the easiest place to say, uh, to, to point to rather, is that the Gospel of Thomas shows almost no interest in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, which of course, especially the death and resurrection, is the axis around which Pauline theology uh, revolves. So, and you know, this is this points to a much broader division, you could say, in early Christianity between those early Christians who regarded Christ's most significant saving act as his death and resurrection, and those who thought that Christ's most relevant and significant saving act was his teaching. Yeah. Um, not that those are exhaustive, but um, that he was a teacher or a, that he embodied something that needed to be 
imitated. Yeah. So we have this very, and, you know, I find your, not only these ideas intriguing, but your reading of this text as some kind of performative, maybe almost like quasi-liturgical or maybe liturgical is not really the word because that tends to be something public and in, in a, a group setting, but something where the, like a meditative text. Yes. Um, a spiritual exercise. There you go. Pure Hado's phrase. Yeah. A spiritual exercise. That's how I read Plotinus's descriptions of union with the higher self as well. So we can get to that maybe in a minute. But um, that's very interesting because we're into the realms of Christian Christian text, which is not primarily engaged in teaching you some information. It's it's sort of opening a door and saying, please walk through and see what you find on the other side. We'll tell you what you're going to find. You're going to find a kind of union that is not union with Christ, um, but please enjoy, right? Which is an amazing um, approach. Maybe that's something that really runs through your book as well, this this theme of the, of the divine double as something lived rather than just a theoretical construct, because I think it goes, mm-hmm. goes for money and uh, Plotinus as well. Turning to Plotinus, our listeners who have heard our special episode on the secret life of the undescended self... Will will be quite familiar with this territory where you have yeah. the noetic self. It's never absent from you, actually, but you're not necessarily ener- you're not. It's not in energia necessarily because you might be distracted by the body and the the realm of extension around you. But it's always there at the same time, and you definitely want to stop being the bodily self and be energized, there's not a word for it, actualize, there you go, actualize Mm -hmm. the the higher self, which is already present in um, potential. And um, so I can see why you have a twinning, definitely have a twinning theme there. It's very interesting because, you know, Plotinus has to make a couple, sorry, this is me talking to you and tell me what you think you're thinking. He has to make a few moves here, which might be counterintuitive to other Platonists around him. Um, it's certainly that no one else buys into the, th- the theory of the undescended self after Plotinus. They all say, no, nah, that's wrong. Even Porphyry, his student, is kind of like hedges on it. And it's like, no, nah, no. Nah. Mm-hmm. But he has to somehow make us in the noetic individuals. So it's not like in the noetic world you find, which is Plato's world of form, you don't just find anthropos there, like the form of human. And we all partake no. in that down here. No, you find like yourself and everyone yep. else that you know there kind of walking around and encountering each other in some way like actually living really living and he describes this like he describes he tries to describe what it's like what do you think of of this take take on this well i think first of all you're abs- i mean i agree that most people seem to think that plotinus is a, a real outlier among platonists insofar as he thinks that uh, <laughs> there are forms of individuals mm. That is to say, every individual being is, its being is guaranteed by an individual form of itself, as you said, not, not as Plato seems to suggest that a form is a kind of a class under which species can be constellated like, like anthropos or human, but that there's the form of Earl, there's a form of Charles. 
um, in the noetic realm. Now, it's not clear that those forms of us resemble Earl and Charles in any obvious way. In fact, the question of what difference obtains um, between forms of individuals in the noetic is fascinating because, of course, most of the differences we tend to associate, uh, those individuating features we tend to uh, associate with ourselves are the result of uh, lower levels of emanation, insolment and embodiment. But yeah, this is a remarkable idea that everything, anything that can be any individual being has its counterpart. So in some sense with Plotinus, the divine, and, and this is looking ahead to Henri Corbin, who, who merges this with an angelology, curiously, every being has a divine double. Mm. Now, he's human, Plotinus is, and he's addressing other humans. So he's interested in what's our, what's, what's, what is our responsibility? How do we respond to the fact that we, uh, like every other being, have a, a divine double or a noetic self? What, what, what claim does that make on us? How do we live uh, in accordance with that, with that realization? Um, and that I find very interesting in Plotinus. And here's a question for you, Earl. You, you're very learned in Plotinus. I find in Plotinus there's a kind of tension between, a productive tension, I think, between his seeming, seemingly saying, this is the structure of everything and there's not really anything you can do about it. Right? You have a noetic self. You're sustained by that noetic self, in which case it's it's unclear what how you're supposed to live it out. And then on the other hand, there's this other side of him, which is very exhortative. You have to live a certain way. You have to, you have to, uh, the way I to often talk about it is open the aperture between the noetic self and the descended self. Mm. Somehow open the aperture between the descended and undescended halves, so to speak. And what does that look like? And, and I think actually Porphyry's life of Plotinus is an attempt to wrestle with what that looks like to an observer. Mm. What does Plotinus's own life with an opened aperture look like to a, um, a devoted student? I love it. I think that's a really, a really good way of reading Porphyry. It involves, I mean, we can specify a few things, right? That Plotinus doesn't even mention. So moderate ascetic way of life, not, nothing too extreme, no hair shirts or anything, but like, not eating a lot, sometimes not eating at all, mm -hmm. um, taking little sleep, which might be a programmatic mm -hmm. thing. You know, we, we find this in a lot of meditative traditions, like don't sleep, meditate. And always being present to his noose, even when he's in company with other people. And Porphyry says, this is something you can see in him, right? He says like, you can see, so he's like chatting, but he's also, he is yeah. his higher self at the same time, right? Um, that seems to be what Porphyry is saying. So presumably, he is. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's difficult to find a way to talk about it in modern terminology because this is such a uh, so so unknown to modern ways of thinking. But it's like he he is actualizing his higher self. He looks just like a regular schmo walking around, um, doing philosophy. I mean, he's he's also lives an exemplary life and has virtues, and, and you know, Porphyry points these things out too. He's he he's just and he helps people and all that stuff. So he's doing all that, but he's also in this higher state of consciousness or being or consciousness being all the time. Not all the time, but a lot. 
And then there's this reference to the four times that Porphyry saw him attain to the highest union with the god that is be above being, which is how Porphyry puts it. And um, Porphyry then says, and I did it too, but that's, you know, his, his own, his usual kind of like self-promotion, I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, Plotinus seemingly is a guy who is treading higher realms kind of as a quotidian thing. It's an everyday thing for him. Mm-hmm. And one of the implications of that life of, to borrow your phrase, of actualizing the noetic self that Porphyry draws out is that Plotinus refuses to worship the gods. That's a curious corollary of this. Yeah. Or he at least says, they ought to come to me, not I to them. Yeah. Which is a fascinatingly, I think in some ways, ironic or at the very least ambivalent statement, which I'd love to parse with you if you're interested in it. Well, it's in the context of Porphyry. I, yeah, let's talk about it. It's fascinating. Um, he says that... The Egyptian priest, yeah. When Emilius, who is... Remember, Emilius is Plotinus's head student before Porphyry comes on the scene. And you notice throughout the life of Plotinus, Porphyry is always kind of... He's, he's never dissing Emilius, but he's always kind of nudging him and like kind of making him look a bit silly and, you know, kind of edging his position up a bit in comparison with Emilius. He says, when Emilius became philothutes, so... Mm-hmm. Pious. <laughs> or, or maybe like the, the, a modern equivalent would be like a, um, you know, became a Bible thumper or something like that. Like someone who's gone over the top in religion. Right? Someone who loves sacrifices. Some people translate it as superstitious. You know, that's a loaded term, so we won't use that. Yeah. But this is the idea. Like, he's a bit too philothutes to be a, a Platonist philosopher. We're not into all that traditional cult stuff. We don't reject it, but we're not super into it. He was going to go to some festival, and he said, come on, Plotinus. I can't remember the festival, I'm sorry to say. And uh, Plotinus said, no, 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 they should come to me, I to them. Uh, not I to them. So the context is, you know, Porphyry's framed it as Plotinus taking the high road versus Emilius's over-fondness for ritual practice, I guess. I don't think we can take that as meaning Plotinus is taking a stand against traditional cult in any kind of overarching way. I think we'd need more evidence there. But if we look at Platonism in general, there does seem to be the sense that we philosophers don't really need to do all that stuff, potentially. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I, I, I mean, I think I probably give that detail a little bit more credence, mm-hmm. or I, I take, I draw a different lesson from it than than you are. Um, I agree. It's very hard to <laughs> draw any firm conclusions about how Plotinus conducted his life on the single testimony of Porphyry. But that particular story follows on the, it's connected to the story of Plotinus um, going to see the Egyptian priest at the Temple of Isis, where the priest offers to make manifest Plotinus's daimon. And what appears to the priest alone, the priest is the only one who witnesses the daimon, is that it is a god. And I think that's important for understanding the story about, because immediately then Porphyry says, and when um, 
Mm. Amulius uh, became a lover of sacrifices. He invited Plotinus to come to um, to visit the temples at the new moon. That was the I'm looking at it now. Yeah. Um, and Plotinus says they ought to come to me, not I to them. So I think that the fact that Porphyry is saying that Plotinus's own daimon is a god is relevant to why Plotinus then, why he reports Plotinus saying, I don't need to go to the temples because those gods ought to come to me, not I to them. Mm. And this is something I, I wrote a piece on this after I finished the Divine Devil. I, I'll send it to you, Earl. I'd love to have your reactions to it because it's trying to make sense of how Porphyry and, and Yambicles, who are, of course, very active in the cult of the gods, yep. especially Yambicles, how they massage this story of Plotinus's alleged refusal to go to the temples, right? How do they revere him and yet also maintain some um, piety, traditional piety, where it, does, it doesn't seem like Plotinus is doing the rounds like everybody else. Yeah, I'd love to read that. When thinking about those those um, theurges, wh- whom of course we shall be covering in the podcast, they're not really following traditional religion. They're following a late antique reimagining of traditional religion via the Chaldean oracles. It's kind of elite, syncretic. Yep. It has some some things in common, I think, with occultism. Actually, modern occultism. I agree. Um, in the sense that it's elite, it's it's um, not for everyone, but at the same time, it has elements of larger religious movements within it and involves a lot of ritual. But it isn't. So they're saying, you know, like Julian is the classic example. He's saying, we are reinstituting the ancient ways. And if you look at his religious reforms, his proposed religious reforms, which didn't end up taking, they're as late antique as you can possibly get, you know. One emperor, one religious cult... There's like an official canon, canonical cult. This isn't the ancient ways. The ancient ways is a huge Mm. mess with no rules and regulations and varies from neighborhood to neighborhood even. So I often think that Julian's version of the old ways is actually paganism made up to look something like fourth century emergent imperial Christianity. It's actually, it's, it's, he's, he's learning (laughs) from from the Christian. Well, he even says yeah. that, you know, he he addresses his his priesthood, his new officially formed priesthood and says, "Don't be afraid to do this, you know, like like for example when there's a plague, um the traditional traditional religion uh approach was to just get the hell away from anyone who had the plague, and these Christians are sending in these kind of like people to care for the people with the plague and they're which seems deeply counterintuitive to Julian and would have felt deeply counterintuitive to a Roman of the or Greek of the classical period. It's like, you're, you're committing suicide. Are you crazy? And he says to his priest, you got to do that kind of stuff. You got to feed the poor. You got to, because the Christians are doing it and they're like winning all the converts because they're doing this sort of extremely um, self-sacrificing public service work. So he, he is consciously saying those strategies, we're going to have those because they're winning mm. and obviously we need to win. And, but you know, that, that story can be extended back a bit further as well because you can say that the Christians are among other things when they're become when the, an imperial Christianity is being formed they're taking certain aspects of the cult of Deus Sol Invictus and many other cults and going oh we'll have those you you guys you guys worship the sun fine we'll slide that in into the mix and then you're going to find it much easier to come join us mm-hmm. so it's a long story of, of forming a, a single uh, religious ideology yes 
but that takes us away yeah. from our topic of twins. I wonder <laughs> if okay. you could, if, if we could just talk about your treatment of Manny and Manichaeism. Sure. We've spoken with Jason Bedoon about Manichaeism, oh, but um, if you'd be so kind as to bring out what the, the, the key twinning points that you find yeah. in Manichaeism. So my chapter on Mani was trying to get at the various stories of his encountering his twin companion. And that phrase twin companion I use deliberately because some of the sources uh, use terms that are closer to the idea that what M Mani was visited by a twin and some a companion. And prior to the discovery of what's called the Cologne Mani Codex, we didn't have a very robust description of this encounter. We had some Arabic witnesses to this, basically what happened, so we can put it together sometime around the age of 12. And again, at the age of 24, Mani seems to have been visited by some celestial being, which he regarded as somehow also himself. Uh, so, so we had this sort of fragmentary testimonies, some texts in Arabic, some texts in Coptic. And then with the discovery of the Kalonmani Codex, which is in Greek, we got a much fuller narrative. And the term in Greek that the Kalonmani Codex uses for this figure is the Sitsigos, um, which is quite literally a yoke mate. Uh, but, but that is, um, well, you know, Greek, it's from the prefix soon and sikos. So it's the two oxen that share a yoke. But it comes to that term comes to be used to refer to twins, um, anything you put in a pair, including a couple, like a married couple, a partner could be a, a sitsigos or a tzitziga. And in any case, so what we have in Mani is this in the Kalonmani Codex, he's speaking in the first person in parts, and he talks about this encounter, uh, seeing himself as in a mirror. And then in the Kephali of the Teacher, this is an, another Manichaean text that survives from Egypt in Coptic, uh, we get a kind of mythology of what's gone on here. And it, it, what it seems to what seems to emerge is this idea that Mani is actually the latest incarnation of a figure that sort of perennially appears to reveal uh, the one true religion, the religion of light. He understands himself as the last in a sequence of figures that includes Jesus, Buddha, Zoaster, uh, and others, some figures we don't even know about. And that this figure is sort of incarnated on earth but then sort of is ignorant of his mission. And then at some point in his life, his counterpart comes down, essentially initiates him, awakens him to this, and he embarks on his missionary uh, enterprise. And we all know Manichaeism was a wildly successful missionary enterprise, unprecedented, yeah. uh, unprecedented and explosive growth. The one thing that I flagged in my treatment of Mani and, and the sources around the uh, around the twin companion is that it's not at all clear in Manichaeism. And I talked with Jason David Badoon about this. It's not at all clear that everyone is understood to have a divine double. Right. Um, it's certainly certainly Mani does, but excavating something like a universal anthropology of the divine double turns out to be much harder. Jason was really helpful to me when I was 
struggling with that. But that puts Manichaeism a bit to the one end of the spectrum, whereas in Plotinus, and I think even in the early Christian materials, this anthropology is universal. Everybody has the luminous Jesus in them. For Plotinus, everyone has an undescended noose. It's not clear that that's the case in Manichaeism. Let me ask you a question here, because one place I see some twinning going on is in the Christian, it seems to me, in the Christianity of Clement of Alexandria. But mm-hmm. it, but where it's most obvious, and it might have a kind of, well, it does. Okay, so there's two levels we could talk about this in Clement. In his doctrine of sort of universal salvation, basically everyone is has an angel in the sphere above them that is teaching them to be a good person, to be good, to get closer to God. When they've succeeded, if they've lived well, they get promoted to being an angel. And their angel that did such a good job of teaching them gets promoted and so on. So there's this whole universal movement toward God, which is um, really wonderful and kind of uh, a glorious take on the very positive side of Christianity, the good news side of Christianity, not the damnation side, but the like, here's the good news, we're saved, that kind of vibe, um, which of course shows up again in Origin. So there's that going on. There is this twinning right up the chain of realities yeah. to the seven prototists, and then maybe even then it just becomes apophatic and you know, you're sort of in the presence of God and no one knows what happens after that. But there's also the Logos theology. So we have, two, we have at least two Christs in Clement. You have Christ, the man who was made flesh. You sometimes get the impression Clement doesn't even really want to talk about that, except he has to because it's in the Gospels. And then the noose, which is the logos, which is the first, well, it's also the world of forms. That's Christ. So there is like a, you know, hyper celestial, eternal reality, mm-hmm. hypostatic Christ being. So Christ clearly, the Christ who is walking around on earth clearly has a higher self that sort of yeah. predated him. So you definitely have that twinning going on. And you always kind of have that in Christianity. If you accept that Christ is both God and man, you always have that double mm-hmm. thing. But in Clement, it's very much, it's much more of a twin vibe to it. So I, you know, I was quite conscious when writing this book that I was leaving all kinds of fascinating evidence uh, to either side. And since the book appeared, of course, I've only learned of more. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so Clement was one I knew that I was not, I, I was deferring. Uh, and earlier you mentioned uh, the, the continuance of this, of this tradition in, of the divine double in both um, Islam and Judaism. And I was very conscious of both of those, uh, that I was not going to carry it forward. I have a very good friend, Adam Afterman, who teaches at Tel Aviv University and is a scholar of Kabbalah, a student of Moshe Edel, who has told me that he read the book he, and he, uh, he said, this is all over. Kabbalah. And in fact, I I already knew it was deeply in the Islamic tradition, just by virtue of reading Henri Corbin and seeing where he excavates it, especially among Persianate kind of uh, mystical tradition. But just to come back to the ancient world very briefly, Earl, you've mentioned Clement. I have a kind of file of all these other texts that I, I, I really think I could write another book about the divine double. And I'm trying to figure out if I should or, or, or why, what's, what would be the point in assembling even more evidence? Um, 
I, I, I mean, I'm quite interested in it, but but there's certainly much more reflection on Socrates' daimonion than I uh, included in the book. There's much more uh, in the notion that the divine double appears in various guises, I think, in what we call, for better or for worse, Gnosticism and the Nakamadi codices and, and other texts in that kind of orbit. I dealt a little bit with that with the Valentinian sources in this book, but I completely skipped Sethian's Gnosticism. Uh, obviously, there's Hermeticism, and this is rampant in Hermeticism, the yeah. idea of the perfect nature. And it's also has some, uh, there's some version of it in Zoroastrianism around the figure of the Fravarti and the Diana. And that one I knew I didn't want to engage directly because I kept as a kind of, one of the ways I tried to control the project was to say, I want to work with sources where I have the ancient languages yeah. and I don't have these ancient Persian languages. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one thing I wanted to ask you. When I, when I was chatting with Jason Badun about Manny's encounter with his divine double, his Suzdegos, I said, is this, uh, is this something he's getting from Iranian religion? I mean, he's, he's living in the Sasanian time when you have a kind of imperial centralized intentional formation of a reformed Zoroastrianism, let's call it. I mean, we can probably call it Zoroastrianism in the way we can call Second Temple Judaism Judaism, even though they're not necessarily calling themselves Jews, right? So you have Zoroastrianism, and in Zoroastrianism, you have, I think everyone has a divine double. And it strikes me that this is the one place where we are unambiguously going way back. No one even knows how far back. Because a lot of our Zoroastrian literature is written down quite late, but reflects long traditions going back God knows how long. Everyone's got a divine double or an angelic supervisor of some kind, right? The Fravarti or Fravashi. I've seen it written both ways. And I wonder if the problem is... And so I asked Jason Budun about this and he said, well, I'm inclined to trace Manny's idea to ideas in Second Temple Judaism, and then he's you know talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like this. I can see that. I can see, you know, um, angelification, um, the encountering the higher self in the form of an angel is a big deal in a lot of these Jewish movements, especially kind of more esoteric and apocalyptic ones of the early centuries of our era. But we're talking about Iran. Why, why not go to the pre-minted, ready tradition of the divine double there. And I wonder if it's just because we're not iranologists. Right. And then we just haven't accessed that. And also because Middle Persian literature is mostly lost, but still we have enough to go on to, to try to make some conclusions here. Uh, so it's, there's no doubt it's there. It's in all of these diverse texts and traditions from the second temple period. Um, I think it's also evident in what, what we're calling Zoroastrianism. And that brings me to something that maybe we should just name, which is, are we talking about something, some idea that through a diffusionist model spread, or are we really talking about some kind of, frankly, perennial model of the self that appears all the time? And I mean, I suspect, sometimes I worried, frankly, Earl, when I was writing the book, that I had uh, like divine double goggles on, yeah. right? You know, once you you see it everywhere. You know, you you know this phenomenon when you're working on something and then you you can't but see it everywhere. Absolutely. 
But I've been now it's been a few years since the book appeared and I've looked at, you know, I've been working on other things. I am no less convinced that this is everywhere. And in fact, I'm more convinced of it because people write me who work in various, you know, far flung worlds um, geographically and chronologically. And they say, you know what? There's a very similar model of the self in this or that tradition. So there's part of me, I mean, I think it's, and I think I'm endlessly interested in tracing it, following this figure where it goes, whether it's Second Temple Judaism or Middle Persian, uh, what have you. But I think that we also need to reckon with the fact that what we're dealing with here is either a perennial human imaginary, because people imagine that they have this and they build up mythologies for it, or this is actually reality. <laughs> you know, that we're, 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 in, in that regard, we're like, we're, we're channeling Plotinus. This is, this is the case. This is what it means to be human. And so the different tech, the different traditions develop different terminology for it, but it's very consistently, uh, it's very consistent, very visible. And I'm curious, you know, how that struck you in reading the book. And, you know, you know, a lot of this literature, how do you, are you more inclined to the kind of diffusionist model? It's an idea it's spread or the, the, the more sort of perennial structure model. My spider sense, my, you know, sort of <laughs> history of religion, spider sense totally buys perennial model. Now, with the caveat that we don't know what that means because no one seemingly has a even remotely falsifiable theory of how culture and even individual human cognition works, but we can observe it working. One of the things it does is form ideas about the self, narrativize the self, see the self in the world outside us, reflected back at us in all these ways. And in that sense, it does seem, I mean, the moment in a way, the moment you say, I have a soul, you've already invented a divine double, right? Mm -hmm. And even if you don't say, I have a soul in the Greco-Greek philosophical context, you might say, but, you know, I, I was talking to my animal spirit or I was, you know, there's all mm -hmm. kinds of ways of, of formulating mm -hmm. a part of ourselves that is, that we talk about as a possession of ourself or as a, as a counterpart to ourself. When you say, I have a, mm, you're already creating this kind of duality within yourself. That does seem really basic. And so within that framework, I find your approach of also trying to get um, to trace genealogies and, and cultural influences very, very helpful as well. Because there's, cl there's clearly different flavors of this that appear in, mm -hmm. different, in different traditions. And can I just insert something there, Earl, which is as much as I love the genealogy and tracing the cultural influences, I also think that needs to be balanced with taking any one instance of this, any text or figure or tradition and affording it uh, a kind of interpretive license. What I mean by that is, take something like the Gospel of Thomas. Obviously, it's connected to a thousand texts around it. But what I'm interested in doing is saying, okay, this text has some model of the divine devil in, in place. Let's excavate that. But let's also attend to the way that this text is making a claim on its reader. What is it presuming to do. You used the word performative earlier. I think that's a great way of getting at it. It's a, or we talked about it as a spiritual exercise. So, because there's some, sometimes I think scholars are so excited by the web of connections that they do a disservice to the, the instantiation 
uh, of what they're looking at. They don't want to interpret it alone. And I think we need to do both. Amen. Amen. Charles Stang, stay esoteric. 